Well, flip back a couple of books of the Bible to the Song of Solomon. Go past Jeremiah and Isaiah, and you will land in Song of Solomon. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 through chapter 3, verse 5 this morning. Charles Spurgeon preached about 60 sermons from the Song of Solomon, and here and there among them he gives his opinion regarding the value of the Song of Solomon for the people of God. In a sermon on the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, called Christ's Estimate of His People, Spurgeon writes the following, The true believer who has lived near to his master will find this book, that is the Song of Solomon, to be a mass, not of gold merely, for all God's word is this, but a mass of diamonds sparkling with brightness. And all things thou canst receive are not to be compared with it for its matchless worth. If I must prefer one book above another, I would prefer some books of the Bible for doctrine, some for experience, some, for example, for teaching, but let me prefer this book above all others for fellowship and communion. When the Christian is nearest to heaven, this is the book he takes with him. There are times when he would leave even the Psalms behind. Some of you are like, no, I'm not ever going to leave the Psalms behind. When standing on the borders of Canaan, where he is in the land of Beulah, and he's just crossing the stream and can almost see his beloved through the rifts of the snow storm cloud, then it is he that can begin to sing Solomon's song. This is about the only book he could sing in heaven, but for the most part, he could sing this through these still praising him who is his everlasting lover and friend. Well, last week we considered the theme of intoxicating attraction in verses chapter 1, verse 2 to chapter 2, verse 7. This is kind of the first scene in the song. And there we saw a young girl who was struggling with her appearance and her insecurities. And yet, a radiant beauty has emerged because a shepherd king has come to her, her husband-to-be, and has showered her with encouraging words and gifts of affection. And this wilted flower began to blossom under the love that was like sunshine to her. And in this morning's text, it's springtime, like it is now, outside. And love is in the air, having described her delight in his protection and his provision and spoken of his courtesy and his love publicly while charging the daughters of Jerusalem to wait until it's the appropriate time before acting out the impulses of this desire, this song has now moved to a second scene. It's moved away from the king's palace, back to the country, to the home of the longing bride-to-be. Now, as we'll see next week, the wedding day and the wedding night are to come in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. But they're fast approaching. And in this section of the song, we get both the proposal and the pre-wedding jitters. So what we're going to see in this is a scene of springtime courtship between this lover and his beloved. We'll see what we learn about the horizontal dimensions of human love and also what we learn about the vertical dimensions of God's love for us as his people. First, first part of the scene is the arrival on the doorstep in chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Now the scene begins in the early morning, we're told in verse 17. 
as the young man comes to the woman's house to speak to her through the window, begging her to come away with him. And these verses are like a movie scene where you find two lovers who've been far apart who start running toward each other and falling into each other's arms. She sees her beloved off in a distance coming toward her and she expresses her desire even as he arrives on her doorstep. There's a clear progression as he comes closer. First, he hears his, her, she hears her beloved's voice. Then she sees him coming, running toward her. And now he's right outside the door. Seems this man is Superman, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, leaping over tall mountains in a single bound. You can almost see the large S on his chest as we begin in verse 8 of chapter 2. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Rather than thinking of him as some creepy stalker sitting outside her window, we should see him more like a Romeo outside of Juliet's window, hoping desperately to come out, that she would come out to the balcony so that he might see her. In verses 10 to 13, which we'll read in just a moment, their eyes meet, the background music is cued, and the sweet play begins. They continue their flirtatious conversation that they began in the previous chapter. Look at verse 10. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. So the beloved invites the woman to come away and be his love which is an invitation that he uses twice in these verses, at the beginning in verse 10 and then at the end in verse 13. And this appears to be some sort of marriage proposal. He wants her to leave her home, cross the wall, join him on the other side where the deer and the antelope play. Look at verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Before we hear how the woman responds to this invitation, let's pause and see the bigger picture of God's love that we're learning from these verses. When the Bible says that God is our husband and that Jesus is the bridegroom, it means that we are loved with this kind of love. The pursuing ardent affection that is characteristic of these lovers in the Song of Songs. Sometimes we think we're beneath God's notice, but the truth is, is that He is always desiring us as His people and looking for us, because we are loved with an everlasting love. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet sings a song of his beloved who had a vineyard, and this beloved took the care, perfect care of the vineyard digging it, clearing it of stones, fertilizing it, guarding it with a wall around it, putting a watchtower in the middle of it to keep an eye on the foxes and other intruders. 
And yet when it came time to harvest, the beloved found only a few sour and bitter grapes on the vines. Isaiah was describing God's love relationship with Israel. God had lavishly cared for his people, and what fruit had she borne for him? A few wild and sour grapes. But God is not a normal landowner, brothers and sisters. God sent his son to rescue and redeem his tenants from their own self-destruction. Jesus came to rebuild our lives into a healthy vineyard by attaching us to himself. He came as a normal man with normal sexual desires that he knew he would not be able to fulfill. And yet Jesus guarded his own vineyard perfectly by by obeying the Father and watching over it and waiting patiently, not for the sake of an earthly bride, but for the sake of a heavenly one, the church. The bride that he chose had no beauty of her own, for she had not kept her own vineyard. She was grimy and dressed in the filthy rags of her sin. And yet, her beloved came and clothed her in the beautiful garments of his own faithfulness, his own waiting, his own watching, so that on the wedding day she might be presented to him without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing, but be holy and blameless and beautiful beyond description. And not only did Jesus protect the vineyard of his own body by resisting the temptation to sin, but he also restored our own spoiled vineyards through his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And by his work, by his grace, he's made peace peace with us in spite of all our spiritual promiscuity. We should never forget this, brothers and sisters, especially when we often feel guilty about sins that we've already brought to Jesus. Our iniquity is not our identity. Our past is not our future. Our sexual or marital or moral history may be marred by failure, but what counts far more than our record of wrongs is Jesus' record of righteousness and that we are holy in Him. Phil Riken summarizes it well when he writes, Undying love led the Son of God to leap galaxies and bound through space to become a lowly human being on little planet Earth. Jesus came to win a lover's heart, whatever the cost. Costly love now compels the Savior to stand at the door and and knock for entrance into our lives. His love declares our beauty and invites us to rise up from sin and even death so that we can go with Him to our eternal home. Through these words, the Holy Spirit hopes that we will hear our Savior's call to fall in love with Him all over again and go away together to a place that is past all pain and sorrow. These very echoes of the heart of the Savior are reflected in the heart of this shepherd king as he longs for his beloved to arise and come away. Do you know that in your own life? Have you experienced the Lord saying to you, Arise, come forth? Well, if you're a Christian, you have. Because that was your regeneration. That was your being born again by the Word, by the Gospel, through the Holy Spirit. And when He called you to arise, He didn't call you just to new spiritual life. He called you into a love relationship with Himself. He said, arise and come away. Come be with Me. We thought our sins would hold Him back, didn't we? For they seemed like great mountains to us. But behold, He made nothing of those barriers. He came leaping over the mountains and skipping upon the hills. There is a God who desires us as His people so passionately that He moved heaven and earth to have a relationship with us. 
Your heavenly bridegroom, dear one, doesn't just gaze at you longingly from a distance through the lattice or through the window, but he has burst through the walls to sweep you off his feet. This is Christ's movement to our own soul. It's highly energetic. It's driven by a deep-seated longing to have us that compels him forward in spite of all obstacles that Satan or Gethsemane might throw in his way. His joy at the thought of getting closer to you caused him to spring and bound over every obstacle that our sin might put in his way. We might think that when he peers into our souls, he wants to find an inner life that's beautiful and well-ordered. But that's wrong. As we saw last week with this bride self-assessment, that it's often correct. We are dark, and yet we are lovely. We have a strange mixture of dignity and disorder about us. But when Christ looks inside our lives, He knows what He will find. He knows that when He looks into our lives, He sees a teenager's bedroom spiritually. There's some order here, but man, I can't see it. Even so, Christ bounds toward us, wanting to find us so broken by sin that we have space for Him to come in and bring new life. Are you broken? Great. Can you do nothing about it? Even better. You're exactly who Jesus is looking for. Charles Spurgeon says, no matter what weather it is outside, it may be springtime within. If your hearts have been frostbound and barren, may they know, now begin to thaw at the approach of Jesus. Christ calls you out, you hidden ones, you who are half ashamed to be seen. He bids you come to Him. Come away from your doubting and fearing, your halting and hesitating. It is Jesus who calls you, therefore come to Him at once. Does anyone need that word this morning? Kids, teenagers, adults? Anyone need to hear Jesus saying, you might be ashamed of me. I'm not ashamed of you. And if you would not be ashamed of me, I won't be ashamed of you on that day. So come, identify with me, belong to me. Secondly, after the arrival at the doorstep, we see the acknowledgement of a danger in verses 14 to 17. And the beloved's response to the invitations of her shepherd king and husband-to-be is quite surprising. She hesitates says nothing at all. Look at verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And she says nothing else. Doves are timid creatures because they do not have much in the way of defense mechanisms, no claws or teeth and not a particularly speedy flight. For safety, they have to rely on hiding in locations where it would be hard to get to them. And from this man's perspective, this woman is like a dove, inaccessible, on the other side of the wall, barred away on the far side of the lattice, visible but out of touch. But then she teases him, not ungently, that he's posing as a danger to their relationship. Notice verse 15. Catch the foxes for us the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Why does she say this? Why does she say, not yet, my love? Because of the foxes that might spoil the vineyard. 
Now, we aren't told exactly what these foxes are. We can safely assume, though, that they're anything that might harm this budding romance before it's had its time to fully bloom. Foxes are those little villains that have the potential to wage havoc and wreak destruction on a vineyard. They're, they're so dangerous that he commands, that she commands him to catch them. We must catch them early because foxes are not large creatures. They're small and sly and sneaky and quick and can get in and out without even being noticed. They usually come out at night so you can't see them and they're especially gifted at hiding in the day if we could see them. And often we only recognize their presence after the damage has already been done. But this is a call to get out in front of the damage those foxes might wage in the vineyard. When Katie and I have done marriage counseling in the past, we often use a book called Catching Foxes. And it's based on Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. And we discuss potentially troublesome areas in marriage in an effort to get ahead of those problems and catch them before they get into the vineyard and spoil the vineyard. Those things can be like communication and role responsibilities and finances and children and in-laws and aging parents and conflict resolution. However, I don't think that's the primary point of these verses, even though that's a legitimate application to them. What is the foxes? What is the primary fox that this bride is calling her bride to be to catch lest it come in and spoil the vineyard? Well, as the romance ripens, there's need for continued caution especially in the area of sexuality. It needs to be protected like a prized vineyard while this romance begins to blossom. It takes patience to cultivate tender blossoms of a grapevine, and it takes patience to wait for a tender romance to become a love that lasts. And also by using the plural form of the verb to catch, we don't see this in our English Bibles, but the word catch is meant to be plural. It's y'all catch, not just you catch, but everyone catch. Y'all catch him. So the woman is asking the wider community of faith that she's been addressing throughout this song. Remember chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5. Don't arise or awaken love until it is the right time. So she's calling upon the wider community of faith, the fox catchers, to help protect their purity. Getting ready for marriage requires the assurance and oversight of people who know what they are doing. Phil Riken again says, Every romantic relationship needs wise protection from manipulation, from physical and emotional abuse, from sexual transgression, with all the spiritual damage that these mistakes can cause. Budding relationships also need to be safeguarded from the many attacks that Satan makes, who makes makes whoever God's sons and daughters imagine a future together that, that can make a difference in the world for his kingdom. So here, the woman wisely pleased, pleaded for their tender relationship to be protected from the danger and destruction of this particular fox. Look again at chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It's a regular theme throughout the song. And it's specifically modeled by this bride-to-be here in our chapter this morning. So she tells him to hit the road. Look at verse 17. 16 and 17. We'll read 17 first. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, 
Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Go back home. Go back to the mountains from which you came. Simply put, she gets, tells him to leave and go back to the place he was at the beginning of our passage this morning in chapter 2, verse 8. So, she wants him to go not to her house, but to the faraway mountain that he originated from. This bride-to-be wisely wants to wait for sexual passion until the arrival of their wedding day, and until then she wants to make sure that clear boundaries of physical intimacy are put in place. But just as in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 that we saw like last week, she's not toying with his feelings or playing hard to get. Before turning him down, she reasserts her pledge to him. Look at verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. I belong to you. Now go home. Until it's time. See, she belongs to him, and now is not the time to start their new lives together. She's not saying no, never. She's saying not yet. And what's the point? Why wait? Because waiting allows the blossoms to bloom and the fruit to be sweeter later. I know that we live in a culture that encourages us not to wait for anything, especially sex. And I know I look like I have three heads up here talking about premarital sex in our culture. But the reason I'm talking about it is not because I have some weird perversion to try to keep people from joy, but because I have a, I believe, God-given desire to protect people's joy. Tending your sexual vineyard is about watching and waiting for a wonderful purpose. Ian Duguid describes this purpose when he says, at the end of the process, you want to present your vineyard to your lover in full bloom so that you can both graze among the lilies without regret or remorse. The intensity of the waiting makes the final consummation all the more glorious. And that's why we wait. Not because we're trying to hold something good, but we're trying to preserve something great. Teenagers, know that. As you begin to blossom in your young teen years and puberty kicks in and hormones activate and desires become stronger, keep this vision before you because it will not be reinforced by anyone in the world. You have one voice that you will listen to, and this will be the test of your discipleship. Will you listen to Jesus and his voice alone? Because he's the only one you'll hear it from. And the church that bears his name. But no one out there will bear that for you. What are you waiting for, man? You're kind of married. You're basically married. How do you know that you're going you're gonna to have sexual chemistry and fit together? But choose this day whom you will listen to and choose this day whom you will serve and listen to the voice that has your eternal best interests at heart. Now, are the foxes of sin a small thing for you or are you vigilant to keep them out? 
A fox is anything that destroys the fruit that God is seeking to bring out of our lives by His Spirit. When He enters our vineyard by the Holy Spirit in conversion, the fruit He cultivates is not immorality, impurity, idolatry, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, or selfish ambition. That's the fruit of the flesh. No, the fruit of the Spirit that we bear is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And these holy repellents send the little foxes scurrying. They flee the vineyard because they cannot abide by the fragrance of gospel grace. Little foxes, little sins are no match for the power of gospel grace. Praise God that we have a Savior that not only forgives our sin and loves us with an everlasting love, but gives us the power to turn away from sin by a superior satisfaction in Himself. With a Christ confidence and conviction, we must not give the devil an opportunity. We must say to him and to our own souls, no little foxes in my vineyard. With the aid of the Holy Spirit, we strive to kick from the vineyard the foxes of bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander and malice. And after dispensing with these little foxes, we replace them with the blossoms and flowers and fragrances of kindness and compassion and forgiveness. This is the vineyard that's cultivated by our shepherd king and bridegroom. Thus we see that even the little foxes that can harm our lives have been dealt with by our Savior at Calvary. They've been nailed to the cross. Christ has already put to death the little foxes that ruined the vineyard. The victory is already accomplished. It's ours for the taking by the Gospel and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thirdly and finally, we see the anticipation of a dream. Having arrived at the doorstep, acknowledged the danger that's present, sent him back home, now the bride's all alone again in chapter 3. And many commentators view this as a dream sequence. As badly as these two lovers desired to be together and as much as they are committed to one another, at the end of chapter 2 they say goodnight and they wisely go their separate ways. However, the woman spends the rest of the night dreaming about the man of her dreams. As chapter 3 opens with what appears to be a dream sequence. Now, chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 complements chapter 2 verses 8 through 17 in kind of a mirror fashion, showing the young woman seeking the man now instead of the man seeking her, and it's at night instead of in the morning and she finds him instead of being sent away as he was. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. Wait, the reason that you didn't find him is because you told him to go home. But you notice that doesn't change the disposition of her heart. Since she couldn't literally search for him on her bed, this is either a dream or a fantasy, and she repeats, I sought the one my soul loves. This shows her insistent, unyielding desire, and it also shows that when she sent her love away, it was not for lack of love. Look at verse 2. I will now, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. 
Now, as soon as the woman sends her beloved away, she was afraid that she might not ever see him again. Was I too harsh? Did I, was that the right time to say that? Did I just blow it? Are we done for good? So she leaves the security of her home, just like he left the security of the figurative mountains to go seek her out. So now she's leaving her home to go to the streets at night to go search for him. This puts her in a vulnerable position in her dream because this would be what prostitutes do to leave their home at night and walk among the streets of the city. But as soon as the woman sends her beloved away and is afraid that she might not see him again and leaves the security of her home to go out and look for him, she asks the city of city guards if they've seen him. Have you seen my man? Have you seen my man? Look at verse 3. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? She looked everywhere and asked everyone she could, and he was nowhere to be found. And then, without warning, there he is. Look at verse 4. Scarcely had I passed then them, that is the watchman of the city, when I found him whom my soul loves, I held him, and I would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and in the chamber of him, of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So once she relocated him, she did what any young woman would do when she found the man of her dreams. She took him home to meet her mama. And without another word, she brings him to the chamber of her who conceived me. And in the modesty of this song, her intent is clear, but not stated outright. By referring to her mother's bedchamber, the woman is hinting not too subtly, that she wants to get married to this man and she's ready to start a family. But the consummation of their relationship happens only in the dream. So far. Next week, we'll see a different story. Now, it comes as a shock to many Christians as I counsel brothers and sisters in our own congregation that this is a part of our experience with Christ. What is that experience? Where we look for Him and we can't find Him. We feel like He's gone away and we can't get back to Him. And so we're asking everybody, have you seen Him? Have you seen Him? What's going on? Am I, what's wrong with me? What have I done? He's left me. We feel like we've been abandoned. We feel like Psalm 30, verse 7. Lord, when You favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Sometimes it feels like Christ is a long way off. You ever felt this way? We missed a promotion. The child's illness goes on and on. We have an unanticipated expense, which means that a long-for vacation has to be abandoned. All kinds of external disappointments can hit us harder than expected or just a sense of flatness or emptiness or inner drag can take on weeks and months and sometimes years at a time. It can flood our souls out of nowhere, leaving us with a sense that God is hiding somewhere or worse, abandon us altogether. Dear ones, if this is your experience and you think it's strange, you need to read your Puritan forefathers. They wrote of this often. 
the idea of spiritual desertion of the people of God. It's a common experience for God's people. It's a normal, normal, normal part of the Christian life. God moves away and withdraws His presence for a time so that He might test us and that we might learn of our deep need for Him. Second Chronicles 32 verses 27 to 31 describes Hezekiah's experience this way. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for gold, for silver, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions, and Hezekiah prospered in all his works, and God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Dear ones, God may choose from time to time to withdraw from you, to put you to some kind of test. We may not like it, but we better accept it, or we will struggle with this normal part of spiritual intimacy more than we need to. What we can be sure of is that Christ knows precisely what he's doing, even if we don't, and he never shows us. So many times in my life, I felt deserted by the Lord, and to my knowledge, the Lord has told me none of the reasons why. He has good purposes, even in the withdrawal of his light, and our responses should always be Isaiah 50, verse 10. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. God may withdraw the light of his presence for a while in order that we may see how dark or empty life truly is without the joy of his salvation. The lover of our souls sometimes withdraws to remind us how much we want him. And then when we find him again, we cling to him all the more tightly. I held him and I would not let him go. Are you willing to have God leave you from time to time if it means you will cling more closely to Him in the end? Now, brothers and sisters, let's make clear what the Lord is doing here because sometimes I've heard it said that it's appropriate to test other people's love in this way. That we we can withdraw from people for a time to time to see if they really love us or not. If If they're going to come after us or not. I don't see that command in the Bible. Do you? Are you commanded to withdraw from someone in order that they might love you better? I think you're commanded to love. Right? When we feel unloved, the command is not, well, wait and see if you're loved. The command is to love. So this is a unique thing the Lord does with us. And only He has the right to do it because only His motives are pure. Our motives aren't pure when we do stuff like that. God's motives are. And he's drawing out what he knows is in there. He's not questioning it. He's not wondering if it's there or not. But he will sometimes withdraw in order to foster a deeper and a longer and a greater and a deeper connection. Now let me conclude here by showing how this particular passage this morning connects to the larger story of Scripture. We've seen it in some ways. But as I was reading and preparing this week, I I read a number of writers making this connection, which I had not seen or appreciated before, between what we read here in this particular springtime courtship period and 
the story of John 20 where Mary Magdalene encounters the resurrected Jesus at the tomb. It's indeed the case that both the bride here in the song and Mary go in search for the king while it's dark. And both are met by others in their search. Both, once finding the object of their affection, cling fast, not ever wanting to let go again. So brothers and sisters, we see in this text partially a fulfillment of the resurrection narrative that we gather to celebrate every single Sunday. We are coming out of the wilderness of the world, out of the streets of the world, to find again Him whom our soul loves. And we gather together and we sing His praise and we fellowship with Him in prayer and we read His Word and we listen to Him speak to us in His Word and we say, ah, there He is. He hasn't left me. There He is. There He is. There's the one my soul loves. I'm my beloved and He's mine. And every Sunday... We get to experience that to greater and lesser degrees of emotional experience. But nevertheless, that is truly what a worship service is about. We go and search for our king. Our king is already looking for us and waiting for us. And he meets us and we cling to him in renewed affection. But there are also thematic parallels with the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Again, we see a man seeking the king, finding him and taking him to his house. And on this parallel, Doug O'Donnell remarks the following. He says, Zacchaeus sought and found Jesus. That's the story. True, he did. But Jesus sought and found Zacchaeus. That's the bigger story. Jesus came out of his safe home to seek after sinners like Zacchaeus, people who are lost in the city streets and squares, and to bring them home to the security and intimacy of his love. So Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14 most certainly is true and beautifully illustrated in the Song of Songs. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found for you by you. This is the Lord's declaration. Yes, we will find our king when we seek him. But unlike the bride, it will be because he first sought us. He first loved us. He first left the mountains to come down to our little humble abode and call out our name before we ever went searching for him. He, we love because he first loved us. God wants everything for us that the lovers had in this song, brothers and sisters. He wants to be the redeemer of your life and the redeemer of your dreams. He wants to be the one who is with you all the time. He wants us to seek Him and find Him and never let Him go because He has sought us and found us and will never let us go. He wants us to be able to say, my beloved is His and, I, and He is mine. Now, the Song of Songs is a beautiful love story, to be sure. It's a sweet scene of this early budding romance in the springtime courtship that's leading to a marriage. But, oh, it's so much more. It's a door that opens to us the greater love story of the Bible, the greatest love story of all, to be found by a greater king, a greater Solomon, a king whose name is Jesus, who left a far higher point than a mountain to go to a far lower point to a little house in the valley, but left heaven to come and take upon himself the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross for us and for our salvation. And he has called us and he has wooed us and he has created us anew by the Holy Spirit to belong to him as his eternal bride. 
May we never lose the sweetness of being sought and found by our Savior. And if any among us this morning have yet to be found, it's not because He isn't looking for you. In fact, the mere acknowledgement that you need to be found is signed that He's finding you. So come on into His house. The doors are open. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Song of Songs and the portrait of human love at its best that we see in this song, this purity, this innocence, this sweetness that some of us have tasted in an earthly form. And yet, in a deeper way, we've tasted it in the richer, fuller way in Christ. Because we have been sought by Him. We have been found. The vineyards, the foxes in the vineyards have all been caught by Him. Such that we are now preserved and kept pure, holy, and blameless for the day of our wedding. Because we have an imputed righteousness that has been given to us, a beautiful wedding garment that we did not earn, that we have been clothed with. And we long for the marriage supper of the Lamb where the marriage feast will commence and the wedding day will take place. And we thank You that we're almost home. In Jesus' name, Amen.